0: going to read chapter 5, verses 16 through 24. We've read these exact same words now for 10 weeks. This will be the 11th. We might have been reading these exact same words for longer than that. I, I actually can't remember. But here's what I don't want to happen this time when we read them. That these are stale words that have become repetition and they're just what we're hearing week in and week out. For in these words that we're going to read this morning, we come to a more profound understanding of what this Christian life is all about than, than maybe anywhere else. So when we read these words, you know... Let's just pray that God is going to do something as we read the words. These are now familiar to us, Father, but I pray that that doesn't mean complacency. I pray that the words we are about to read, would—they would, they would it'd be as if it's the first time we're hearing them, and our hearts would spring for joy as we read them. Our hearts would be moved away from the old self to live in the new self, to live in the new creation, to live in what you paid for. Do this in our hearts, I ask in Christ's name. Amen. Are you ready? But I say, walk by the Spirit. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, sensuality, or jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, Faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. <laughs> so, how'd that strike? What I want to do, one thing I want to do this morning, is take us to this great fountain of text that we've just read and show you a convergence of these streams that are coming together. You know, We've had nine weeks in the fruits of the Spirit, and this one today, what it all looks like, what is the big picture? I want to answer a couple questions. What does a Christian look like? What are they supposed to be marked by? What are you supposed to look like? And then I want us to know that if we see those things, you're God's. You are his. You are his forever. Nothing can take that away from you. Your hope is assured. You can be confident in your salvation. You should have a joy that nothing can steal And that all sounds maybe a little high and lofty, but that's the work that God's in, and we're asking him to move and accomplish these things. So let's pray again. Again, we come before you needy and broken and simple and forgetful. And so we need you to fill us, to remind us, to move us. Lord, move in power. You've called us into a certain lifestyle. You've called us into a whole new lifestyle, a whole new way of thinking and a whole new way of wanting and acting and living and loving. And so, Lord, I pray that as we go through this message today, you would all the more be changing our hearts and moving us into this new life, this new creation that you have, uh, again, purchased for us. Lord, use my words to somehow do this by the power of your Spirit and use our ears to receive lightning from heaven. In Christ's name we ask. So I think one thing that we're getting in the book of Galatians is that there is this underlying need for every human being, this need to be a good person. I think we all really want to be a good person. We all know that we should be a good person. The Galatians are going so far that they're talking about mutilating their flesh so that some people will consider them to be good people. And so this underlying need to be a good person, which is kind of subsurface for Galatians. And Galatians. Uh, I think we all realize this to varying degrees i thought i'd throw up a quote by socrates regard your good name as the richest jewel you can be possessed of it's just another way of saying the best thing that you can be about is being a good person or at least <laughs> maybe pessimistically taken the best thing and so about is being perceived as a good person And so, of course, the question must follow, how do you know if you're a good person? By what standard do you measure your goodness? Because I'm pretty sure that your idea of goodness and my idea of goodness are quite different. You define a good person this way, I define a good person that way. And so, is there a standard for goodness that's not subject to our own opinions and our own whims and our own stages in life? Well, of course. Right? Jews and Christians agree together that the ultimate standard of goodness comes from God's law. He gave his standard for goodness in the Mosaic law. And to be good according to God is to be righteous. To be good according to God is to be righteous. And that means being perfectly good, being perfectly just, being perfectly merciful just to name a few. So this Mosaic law that God gives Israel, it's a covenant between him and Israel, and God says to Israel through this covenant, if you obey my law, I will be your God. If you obey my law, you will be my people, and I will be your God. You obey my law, I will bring you into promise. I will give you this land. I will bring you this king. You will be, Israel, my sons and daughters, if you obey my law. It was a conditional covenant. And Israel fails at this miserably, over and over and over again. There are high points, but they fail again and again. And in fact, every other person throughout all of history who has ever tried to hold up God's standards and live that has failed. In fact, rarely do we even measure up to to our own rules that we create for ourselves. We are full of inconsistencies. And God's law, so much higher than our own. Nobody can keep God's standard. Nobody is good. No one is righteous. No, not one. So why would he give us a standard that's unreachable? And I think that there are two reasons. And let me just say, a lot of this is review from our our walk through the book of Galatians. But here they are again two reasons why God gave the law. The first is to give definition to righteousness. We want to know what good is, we want to know what righteousness is, the law. The second reason is to show us how far we fall short of that righteousness. We all fall short of the glory of God, of his goodness. And so he gives these two things in the law so that we look outside of the law. We look to God and we depend on him to forgive us for not being righteous, to forgive us for our unrighteousness and then to somehow deliver to us righteousness. We've got to look at the law and say, I am not finding goodness there. I'm not finding righteousness there. And so we look outside of the law. We look to God who can give it and who forgives for being unrighteous. So that's his intention in the law. So even though Israel doesn't get that over and over again and fails at keeping the law, God remains merciful Israel's unfaithful, God is merciful. Merciful. He chose to love Israel despite her failures, despite her sins and her wanderings. And then on top of that, he chooses to do what Israel could not do. God the Son becomes a Jewish man. And God the Son lives a perfectly righteous life. And he becomes the one that fulfills the terms of the covenant, the terms of the law. Jesus Christ fulfills the terms of the law. And in doing this, Jesus Christ becomes the one true Israel. He becomes what Israel could never be. He is true Israel, the true Son of God. He kept covenant perfectly, righteously, like no man could do. And then there's one more thing, one more thing that I skipped over, one more thing that he did. The law does demand perfect righteousness, and anything less than perfect righteousness brings condemnation. Sin brings death. And so for us who are sinful, that standard is unbearable, isn't it? How can we live up to the standard and fail daily bringing condemnation upon ourselves? How can we live up to the standard? And so God provides an escape clause in the law, a way to escape condemnation, sacrifice. For sins, this innocent animal would be taken And would suffer your condemnation and your death and you would be spared. This animal would die and you would be spared. And then hopefully you would go on from there, leave that altar of sacrifice and live in repentance, live in righteousness. You'd turn from those sins and you'd live in a new, different kind of way. But the problem is we can't sustain that. We can't continue to live in righteousness even after the sacrifice has been made. And so another sacrifice must be made for those sins that are committed later. And then when we sin again, another sacrifice must be made. Another innocent animal dies and another innocent animal dies. And and after a while, there's this long trail of dead animals following our sinful lives. And it's unsustainable. And after a while, after so many innocent animals are killed, does it mean anything anymore? It does, (laughs) but we're a forgetful people. So for the sake of every sinner, for the sake of every one of us in this room, that righteous Son of God offers himself as the final sacrifice, the Lamb of God, the innocent sacrifice. And there on the cross, he received condemnation. Not because of his sins, but because of our sins. And his blood is spent, and he dies. He dies our death, not a death he deserved, a death that we deserve. It happens all on the cross. And that righteousness of the Lamb, the righteousness and the innocence of Christ, is so great that God is satisfied with this one sacrifice. His sacrifice is the perfect sacrifice. Christ is sufficient. No more sacrifices are now required. It is done. It is finished. The sacrifice is complete. And so now when we sin, we do not go get a lamb and take it to a temple and slit its throat on an altar. Now when we sin, we believe that Jesus did that was that sacrifice, and our sins are covered and are removed. And we are forgiven. We are cleansed. As I, as I read earlier, we are, from Psalm 51, we are cleansed from all unrighteousness. And do you know what it means to be cleansed from all unrighteousness? It means that you're righteous. When all unrighteousness is removed, all that's left is righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake the Father made the Son to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. That we become the righteousness of God. That is amazing. And now, through our faith in Jesus Christ, God unites us to the Son. He brings us into uh, oneness with the Son. We are clothed in Christ. We are hidden in Christ. We are united to Christ. So our sins are forgiven and we are made perfectly righteous in God's eyes. You stand next to this perfection, this standard that's unachievable on human terms. You stand next to the law and God says, righteous. He looks at you and the standard and he says, you meet it. You are justified. You are righteous because you are clothed in Christ. So now in Christ, you are a good person to the greatest degree. Do you remember when that man approached Jesus and said, good teacher? And Jesus' quick response was, good? Why do you call me good? Only God is good. That is a high standard of goodness. And now in Christ, clothed in Christ, that's you and me. Okay, but being righteous... I think we should all see this. Being righteous is not just about somebody saying you're righteous. It's not just about a declaration. It's about actually being good. It's about actually becoming righteous. And so God knows this is impossible for us because even though he declares us righteous, we're still sinners. We're still dealing with this fleshly side of ourselves with sinful desires and appetites and passions. And so knowing the impossibility of that, of us becoming actually good. God, the Spirit, is given to us to invade our lives and begin changing us from the inside. The Spirit has invaded our lives, dwelling within us to make us actually into a righteous person and a good person. The Spirit, they're the Father's declaration and the Spirit's work, and they're bringing harmony. To, to your righteousness. Your life and the Father's declaration are coming into harmony by the Spirit's work. And you are being made actually, literally into a righteous person. But as we're all painfully aware, this doesn't all happen at once. The Spirit's doing this bit by bit, slowly and painfully. It feels at times, but it's happening from one degree of glory to another. And what does this look like? Well, it looks like the fruit of the Spirit, right? This bit by bit work, this little bit at a time. It looks like love, and it looks like joy, and it looks like peace, and patience, and kindness. Faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, they're all growing. They start as these little tiny green, gross fruits, and they're growing, ripening, getting sweeter, getting better, getting bigger, getting more beautiful, getting more noticeable. And so at some point when you look at the tree, all you can see anymore are the fruit. It's happening. That's the spirit making you in to a righteous person, a good person, bit by bit. And this is all happening outside of the law, apart from the law, which the Spirit is making you good in. So hear this. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are actively engaged in making you righteous. The work of God for man is to make us righteous. Didn't he create us for this? He created us in his own image. And the most fundamental thing about that is that we would be righteous like our Father is righteous and represent his righteousness here on this earth. But we failed at that. And so what he is doing now is he is within us, creating us making us again into that image, restoring the image within us, making us righteous, just, and merciful, and good. So if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then these three things are happening within you. Jesus was your sacrifice, and you have been forgiven, and you continue to be forgiven. Two, the Father declares you righteous and He unites you, He clothes you to His Son. And so you are now a fulfiller of covenant righteousness. Okay, so the terms of the law are being met have been met on your behalf and so now when you come to the law it is fulfilled the terms are completed and that righteousness is true of you the third thing is happening the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you bringing the Father's declaration and your life into harmony and the visible evidence of that are the fruits of the Spirit or is the fruit of the Spirit okay these three things are happening within you now okay okay so let's turn again to our passage with all of that review, all of that gospel, and read verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. Against such things, there is no law. Against such things there is no law. Such a little simple phrase with eternal impacts. Monumentally profound impacts. So there's a few connotations that come with against such things there is no law. Against all of the fruit, against all of that stuff, against all of those righteous works, there is no law. So if the law is supposed to give definition to what righteousness is... Then all that the law is able to do, the only power of the law is to look at something and say righteous or not righteous. It only identifies righteous and unrighteous. That's the power of the law. And then that means again that righteousness and unrighteousness that good and evil must come from some other place than the law you intelligent the law doesn't make these things happen no more than a, a test gives you intelligence the test only identifies where there's intelligence right so you can't be made intelligent by taking a test like you can't be made righteous by trying to observe the law It merely identifies it. So, the law, what the law does then, is it reveals in each one of us that the spirit of righteousness is at work within us, that the covenant righteousness God made with humanity is at work within us. It's fulfilled and it's true, and righteousness is flowing out of us. So, against such things, there is no law. You're righteous. And there's no law that prohibits this. You're righteous, and the law looks and says, righteous, and God looks and says, righteous, and all humanity one day will look and say, righteous. For against such things there is no law. Secondly, if there's no law against righteousness, then all that's left is freedom, freedom. Freedom means that you do whatever you want to do and it's good. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? But here's the caveat, here's how it happens. True human freedom is in righteousness. All of the other stuff is bondage and slavery. Doing what you selfishly want to do. Doing what you arrogantly want to do. That's bondage and slavery. But doing what you want to do in the spirit of righteousness is freedom. And there you can do whatever you want to do. And it's good. And it pleases God. And it's for the good of others. So freedom looks like this. It's going to sound redundant. It looks like love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's human freedom. That's what's being made in you, and that's what you're walking into. Freedom to do what you want to do, and everything that you're wanting to do is loving, and is joyful, and is peaceful, and so on. That's your new life. That's freedom. And that is why Paul encourages in verse 16... Walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, for the Spirit leads you into righteousness, for the Spirit leads you into freedom. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 17 and 18. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What's there? Righteousness and freedom. The Spirit leads to freedom, and the Spirit transforms us into the image of Christ, the righteous one, the only one who was ever good. By faith, the Spirit makes you a person totally free from the the restrictions of the law, totally free from guilt that comes from breaking the law, free of condemnation. The need to be a good person, the desire to be a good person, finds its fulfillment as the Spirit makes us new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. For the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Do you have that verse memorized? Perhaps this week you should commit to that. Because it's talking about you. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The new has come. Do you know what that's saying? Like, we're all looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth and the culmination of all things. But this is saying that that little taste of the new heavens and the new earth is now true in you. You are newly created. The new creation is true here. That's amazing. Behold, the new has come. You're a new person because the Spirit is working within you to make your desires Christ's desires. Your desires are turning into his desires. Your loves are turning into his loves. You have this gratefulness in your heart for all the things that he accomplished for you so that you are rejoicing in God with your life. Therefore, go on walking by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit cannot mean sitting around waiting for transformation. Walking by the Spirit means that we walk, we're engaged, we're active in this. We don't wait for transformation, we war. This activity that we're being called into is war, is battle. And that's why right after Paul says all of this amazing stuff, (laughs) against such things there is no law, immediately he says, and those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So 2 Corinthians 5:17 Behold the old has passed away behold the new has come the old self that has passed away it has been crucified with Christ if you belong to Christ Jesus then the old self has been crucified with all of its fleshly desires and passions the new self has come the new self that walks by the spirit the new self that's producing Righteousness, fruit of righteousness, the new self that's living in freedom. This new self has come, transformed to look like Jesus, being recreated. So belonging to Jesus, coming to him in faith, means that at the exact same time that old self is taken up to the cross and nailed there, No longer do you want to live like that. No longer do you want to go on sinning. No longer do you want to pile more on Christ's shoulders as he hangs there on the cross. And so you take that old self and you crucify it. You want a new way of living and that desires the spirit's work. This is the essence of Jesus' call. Repent and believe in the gospel. Do you realize that? That's Jesus' first words when he comes out of the wilderness um, in, in the book of Mark. Repent and believe in the gospel. Take that old self and crucify it and now live in the newness of the gospel. The Christian life begins with life and with death. Life in Christ, death to the flesh. For it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Because of that, I have crucified myself. you trust Jesus with your life, then you have crucified the old self. And now that transformative power of the Holy Spirit is, is at work within you, making you think like Jesus, making you act like Jesus, making you want what Jesus wants, giving you his loves and his desires. These things are happening within you, and there the fruit of righteousness grows. And that transformation, now repeated, it's so powerful in the life of the believer that Paul can honestly write, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Did you ever stop and think about what that means? Because he's writing the words as a living person. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The old self has passed away. Behold, the new self has come. By declaration of the Father, by the sacrifice of the Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are redeemed. You are a righteous one. You are a son or daughter of God. It has begun, and it is ongoing. It is ongoing, which is why Paul exhorts, walk by the Spirit. Continue the activity. And so there's something else we must understand about this crucified self. If you were here for our study through the book of Mark, then you might remember that sometimes it takes a very long time for a crucified person to die. There was one record of a man lasting three days on a cross before he died. (sighs) That would be awful. But once crucified, you're as good as dead. You are dead, effectively. And yet there you hang, struggling for every breath, fighting for your life, still resisting the inevitability of your impending death. You're as good as dead, living, fighting for life. And that picture is the picture that Paul is giving us to hold in our minds of this pathetic battle for life of a person nailed onto a tree. The old self, with its passions and its desires, is crucified. It is as good as dead. Yet there he still struggles for life. There he looks to somehow dictate the way that we live our lives, the old self. And it's going to take him a very long time to die. And this body of flesh must pass away before the cross has total consummate victory and his last last breath is spent. And so there he lingers on that cross. And you might say, isn't it a little bit funny because a crucified individual seems like a very feeble foe. What threat is he to me? What can he do to me? But we feel sorry for him. We see the writhing, we feel the torment, And so we offer him a little bit of water to satisfy his appetite. We invite him to come down and take a break from that agony, from that restriction. Foolishly, for a moment, we seek to bring relief to this crucified individual. But here's the thing. That old self up there on the cross, the flesh... Sinfulness is a cancer. He is the living dead. For him to be free is for him to feed on you with a hunger that is never satisfied. And so the only way that you and I can be safe is to drive the nails deeper. Romans 8:13 and 14 For if you live according to the flesh you will die but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live for all who are led by the spirit are sons of God So you see him in his pathetic form struggling for life and by the power of the holy spirit you drive the nails deeper in you kill the flesh he's crucified, crucify him. We should be shouting crucify him when the flesh is hanging there. Don't give him room for influence. Don't feel pity for him. He is as good as dead and so with everything that you have, crucify him. John Owen, the famous, great Puritan writer and thinker wrote, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. There is no middle ground. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. And this is why Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus says if we want to follow him, we're not just following him to the base of the cross. We're following him up onto the cross. And there we stretch out the old self and we drive in the nails. Last week I said that every one of the fruits of the spirit is meant to be weaponized against this flesh, against the old self. And so, we fight our selfishness with love. We fight sinful pleasures with joy in God. We fight guilt with the peace that comes from Christ. We fight a demanding spirit with a spirit of patience. We fight hatred and indifference with kindness. We fight immorality with goodness. We fight inconsistency and apathy with faithfulness. We fight severity with gentleness. We fight our sinful appetites with self-control. All of those are like nails, thorns on a crown. And we drive into that crucified self. As we are led by the Spirit and by His fruit, we wage war against the flesh, who, if we would allow Him, would come down off of that cross and feast we will kill that sin before that sin kills us that's war now at this point i want to remember chapter 17 or verse 17 of chapter 5 look at it with me for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And when I preached through that, I said it then, I'll say it again, that's a very ambiguous statement. You don't know who's winning. You don't know if the spirit's winning. You don't know if the flesh's winning. You don't know if what you're doing is what you're supposed to be doing or not doing. It just says you're not doing what you want to do. There's no indication of who's in control of that battle. what he is indicating is that there is conflict, that there is war, that there is battle, and this should give us great hope. This means every follower of Christ has a struggle. And so sometimes it feels like the flesh is winning, and sometimes it feels like the spirit is winning. But if there's struggle, you belong to God. God. I found the words of theologian Tom Schreiner to be extremely helpful. If the conflict between the flesh and the spirit is strong in our life, we should not become discouraged and think we aren't Christians if we are engaged in struggle against sin. The opposition between the flesh and the spirit is the normal Christian life, which is not marked by perfection, but by war. J C Ryle an amazing man of God and preacher from the 1800s wrote in his book Holiness Are we conscious conscious of two principles within us contending for the mastery Do we feel anything of war in our inward man Well let us thank God for it It is a good sign It is strongly probable it is strongly probable evidence of the great work of sanctification all true saints are soldiers. Anything is better than apathy, stagnation, deadness, and indifference. I love that last line. Anything is better than stagnation and apathy and deadness and indifference. Life is war, this Christian life. What a wonderful truth. A war within our souls is one of the greatest evidences that we belong to Christ, that we are sons and daughters of God. And so there are three marks of a Christian that we get from our passage. Righteousness, freedom, and war. A Spirit lives within you to make you righteous. Live in the joyful freedom of that Righteousness. And make war against the flesh with, which is fighting the spirit. In other words, as he started this paragraph, walk by the spirit. So if you're wondering, how do I do all of this practically? Well then, rest easy, because the rest of Galatians is going to take us there. what it really looks like to live in righteousness and freedom and war. But we already know that it looks like the fruit of the Spirit, and we've spent nine weeks practically unfolding every one of those fruits. And so you have at least nine practical ways to go on living in righteousness and freedom, making war against the flesh. But know this, you are not alone in this conflict. For the Holy Spirit has made his home in you, And he's doing this work, and he is waging this war with you, in you. And he is making you righteous, and he is bringing you into freedom. And he will, and you will know, final victory over the flesh. It's coming. For he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. That is a rock-solid promise that our God gives us. Now, like I said, for the past nine weeks, we've been... unfolding these fruits and hearing from different people as they unfold these fruits and say how that each one of those fruits has been active in their life, not not arriving, not achieving, but fighting for it. One of those weeks I had asked Hattie Christian if she would like to share a little bit of her story. Maybe some of you don't know Hattie. She's been a longtime member of this church and because of her health, rarely is he able to make it into church anymore. So because of that, she declined that invitation to share. And then a week or two later, her husband, Archie, brought a letter to me that Hattie had written. And my very immediate thought was, great, what am I going to do with this? I've already got every week planned it's a nice idea, but what can I really do with it? But I hadn't read it. So I took it back into my office, and I read it. And I could not keep myself from weeping as I read it. And uh, it's, it's extremely powerful, even now. Uh, so I thought what we need to do with that letter is bring it to this final week, where all of the fruits the righteousness, the freedom, the war are coming together in this one letter, and it's amazing. This is the Christian life. I want to invite her son, Jeff Christian, uh, up here to share that letter with us. And Jeff, could you grab that mic on your way up?
1: The title of this that I'm reading for my mother is My Relationship with God. Some of you don't know me. I haven't been in church since June because of health problems. Prior to that, uh, a few years back, she had been uh, in and out of the hospital, as she called vacationing in a local hospital frequently, and was had thoughts that kept revolving in my mind that I will share with you now. No way, I thought at first, but it kept persisting. One of the things that she shares: I can't do anything on my own, but through Christ who strengthens me, I can succeed. Another thing that persisted was I I learned is to let God do it. I have a slogan I tell myself, Hattie, get out of the way and let God do it. Something else that she learned through life is Do tomorrow what you didn't accomplish today. Don't push it off. As she stayed in the hospital one time, she also learned that we need to recharge our battery. A nurse came in the middle of the night and said, your battery is dead for your heart monitor. Our spiritual battery needs recharging, and God's word and communion with him. God is with us in all situations, big or small. I attended several different churches in my life, but nothing seemed to take root. It wasn't until after I was married that we started to attend Emmanuel. Someone visited us and presented the plan of salvation. It still didn't sink in. Person asked me if I wouldn't do it for my husband. Naturally, I did. After some time had passed, a revelation occurred. It said, Hattie, you've got it all wrong. You can't accept. You can't accept Christ in your life because someone else desires it. It has to be what you desire in in your heart. A relationship with God. Something else that she's learned and a point is... God is always in control, even when we don't see it. On July 14th, 1965. We were in a car accident where a truck driver fell asleep and crossed into our lane from the other way. God shows himself in awesome ways even in difficult times. We lost Chris who would have been four on Ju- uh, July 31st. We also lost Sean who was two in May. We lost Dana who was who I was five and a half months pregnant with. And we also lost our niece, Mandy, who was two. Arch and Jeff were badly bruised. The the doctor told Arch that I would survive, but if I did, I would be paralyzed or vegetable. They said I would be in the hospital three to four months, and God had other plans. I was released in one month. It's amazing. I don't remember having thoughts about being crippled. When we lose someone... We need closure with the past, so we may go on to the next step of life. I sensed something was missing. I didn't have closure because I wasn't able to attend the children's funeral. After several years, I had thought to write a letter to our heavenly sons. after which there was peace (sniffs) that filled my soul. (sniffs) Even though we lost someone, They are still loved within our heart. I wrote another letter to our heavenly sons. I read it to Arch. We embraced and shed tears of sorrow, tears of joy, love, tears of peace, tears of hope and love. We need to share things with others especially God who feels our emotions. And she wrote a letter that goes like this. Dear God, how do I find the words to thank you for all that you have done? words don't seem enough I want to thank you for Christ for taking my pain and the cross I'm sorry for the grief I've caused you I wish to thank you for our son Jeff and the way you were directing his life also his wife, Beth, and son, Gideon, who are a blessing to our life. I wish to thank you for our daughter, Laurie, who has three sons, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. A husband, John, who passed away a year ago and is remarried to Chip. I wish to thank you for our daughter Jody and her husband Brad, who is a pastor, and their daughters Cassie and Morgan. I wish to thank you for this church, which has nurtured my relationship with you, your servant Hattie.
0: It's amazing. I was so not prepared uh, to open that letter and read that. (laughs) Righteousness and freedom and the war against sin and selfishness, all powerfully on display in that letter. Uh, such a beautiful, uh, one, one of the most beautiful letters I've ever read. And and from somebody that we hardly get to see and hear from, but I love how there is this miracle unfolding in hidden places that God is growing and we can all benefit from right here. The fruit of the Spirit, indeed on display in Hattie's life. In and in Archie's life, and in and Jeff's life. Amazing. So I want to leave us with one marvelous, marvelous little promise that's tucked into this passage. Because life gets hard, right? This war is hard, and things get stripped away from us that we don't understand, And so there's this one marvelous promise that's listed. Paul lists these 15 works of the flesh, these 15 things that are produced by selfishness. And then he says right after those 15 things, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Did you hear the implicit promise right there? Because what he does next is he lists love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So if anybody is living with any amount of righteousness in their life, is if anybody is experiencing any measure of freedom in the spirit, if anybody is fighting with the flesh to any degree, you will inherit the kingdom of God. All of its glories and all of its promises and all of its hopes and joys are yours. The Savior who died for you, who gave his life for you, who loved you, he is yours. God the Father who planned it all is yours and you are his and you will be with him forever. The kingdom of God is yours. You feel the conflict. Fight. Because on the other side is an eternity of life, of righteousness, and of freedom. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us with him graciously all things? Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, was raised... Who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, or family members who die? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. Father. Your work is miraculous, undeserved, immeasurably good, and we worship you. Lord, I I thank you so much for the testimony of Hattie and what you're doing and have been doing in her life. And I thank you that her hope has remained unshaken. Lord, I pray that we would all aspire to that same kind of hope. That same kind of fighting and freedom and righteousness. Work in us, Father. Bring us into that. Freedom, Help us to know more and more what it means to walk by the Spirit. Grow in us more and more every one of the fruits that we might truly live as new creations, clothed in Christ, your sons and daughters, bearers of your image. We are yours, and you are ours because of Christ, in his name, amen.